This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Fundamentally, I am rooting for every single human to chart their path forward listening to the messages that come from that inner voice that tells us, I'm good at this, I love this. And if you ask any of us, what would you do if it was just up to you? Most of us have an answer to that. And if we're not able to be that person, it's because society or parents or peers have told us, oh, that's not legitimate. That was Julie Lithcott-Hames on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot POTC, ZocDoc.com POTC. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. 
We're so happy to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education here at Psychology Off the Clock. They offer continuing education for promoting lasting change with evidence-based training, and they're the premier provider in continuing education for clinical professionals. Some of their ongoing, on-demand, anytime classes include ACT Immersion with Steve Hayes, ACT in Practice, and also the DNAV model, which is with Louise Hayes, who works with adolescents and is fantastic. Yes, and we have big news. We, Diana and Debbie here, are offering a Praxis training. It's a two-hour workshop on Wednesday, April 28th, and you can sign up. Best of all, it's free and anyone can join. It's not limited to therapists. And what we're going to do is talk about some of the concepts from our book that we have coming out in May and offer you some practices that you can use from acceptance and commitment therapy to thrive in your own life. So we're really excited to be offering that. You should check it out and we hope you can join us. So go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, to get a promotion code on live events through Praxis. We've had a number of guests on the show that we've been inspired by and that are offering you, our listeners, discounts on their programs. If you go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, you'll be able to find coupon codes for the programs of Dr. Judson Brewer, Dr. Rick Hansen, and Jen Lumenlin. So go check it out at offtheclockpsych.com and start learning today. Hey, everybody, it's Jill here, and I'm here with Diana to introduce an episode with the author Julie Lithgott Haynes. And we talk a lot in this episode today about the concept of adulting. And Diana shared with me after listening to this that she had so many thoughts, especially as it related to her current practice. So Diana, I'm curious, I've been dying to hear what these thoughts are. (laughs) Well, this episode was so fantastic. I love how you talk about your own personal experience with parenting. And Julie just has such a a rich perspective on how to support Generation Z and and, uh, millennials in becoming adults. And the thing that has really stood out for me recently, because I work a lot with 20-year-olds, is that... The research on Generation Z and these 20-year-olds is that not only are they being impacted more by the pandemic than other generations, but their stress and anxiety was already on the rise. Mm -hmm. And I see that in my practice right now. It's sort of this timely moment where people are getting, they're graduating, they're getting ready to move on to getting a job or college applications are starting to come in. And what is interesting is to see the stress and anxiety that they're experiencing. But I actually think that parenting has changed, at least for the for some of the clients that I'm working with, where the stress isn't coming from their parents, it's coming from some other places. And this unique time where social media is both their social support, as well as the thing that makes them feel bad about themselves. And I can't yeah. imagine like having my college acceptance and rejection being, you know, blasted to a thousand people or seeing a thousand people accepted the school that I was striving to get to. So I think it's this unique time for this generation and how to support them as Julie lays out so well, uh, navigating the challenging times. Yeah. I mean, it's a really interesting point. And I think you're right. I think what we've seen over the decades is the ways in which parenthood tends to swing like a pendulum. And the changes are always coming from the best intention. Like what we learned from the last generation of parents, we're going to do differently, but oops, the pendulum swung a little too far (laughs) in the opposite direction. And that has its own kinds of issues. But I agree with you. I think there's this other whole set of issues where, for example, I did a talk at a prestigious private school that I just assumed was a really high pressure environment in terms of the types of pressure the parents might be putting on the kids. 
And in fact, all the parents who attended the talk were begging me to teach them how to teach their kids to take the pressure off themselves. Yeah. So it is this really interesting, I think, added layer of what's going on with kids right now. It's like this, this pressure that they're putting on themselves. And I think you're right that social media plays a big role in that. It's that social comparison and having to measure up, not just to my parents' expectations, which is more how it was in the past, but all of these tens of thousands of people out in the, the ether. Yeah. I think another part of it is that the parents have evolved and maybe their perspective on parenting has, you know, we've all gotten more educated, right? That's part of being a parent now. There's like a parenting course that we're all taking, right? But the parents are still doing that level of striving for themselves for perfection. So maybe mm -hmm. it's being modeled in the parents. The high achievement is being modeled in the parents or the self-criticism. And that even though they're not actively doing it towards their kids, maybe they're doing it towards themselves. And I think that that's part of what Julie also talks about is how our children teach us so much about things we need to change in ourselves to be mm -hmm. better parents. There, there's so many lessons in that. And I mean, even just, the whole, I'll mention homeschooling because it's my favorite topic. <laughs> Bingo card. <laughs> um, but even just homeschooling my kids this year, I notice how how much I uh, can get caught in like rushing through a, an assignment to get to the end point rather than letting them be curious and staying in the process, the, you know, sort of the act psychological flexibility process of being curious. I want to get to the end or I want to get to the finish line or I will, you know, kind of point out mistakes as opposed to seeing the mistakes are just the process of learning. And I think that that's why this podcast is so helpful for me because I'm not an expert in parenting. That's Yael's job. But <laughs> but I'm learning through interviews like this, like, okay, this all kind of maps on that when I work on my own relationship with some of these places where I get stuck, it helps with my kids. Yeah. And I think that's such a great point about modeling because, you know, even think back way back when to when we were kids, you know, how did we learn? We didn't learn because our parents wagged their fingers in our faces and told us what to do and how to do it. We learned by trial and error and by modeling, by observing what they do, social learning, right? So, I, I mean, I think that's a, that's a really interesting hypothesis of how much of this like striving and achieving in kids is coming from them watching what we're doing, even if we're trying to do a better job of the parenting stuff. Yeah. I loved how Julie talked about struggle and both of you talked about the sort of struggle. And I, one of the things that I think about with with my kids is this difference between struggle and suffering that that it's okay for kids to have a like a little bit of struggle mm -hmm. and the you know the sort of helicopter model that she talks about of like the, the parent that you know pops in every moment to to rescue them but really as parents i'm kind of interested in more of this like i guess an accordion model where when allow them to struggle a little bit, give them a little bit of space, move the accordion out so that they can be in a little bit of struggle, but then move in when they're suffering. And mm -hmm. that we sort of stay connected the whole time as we move out and we move in. And it's not just this trajectory of I'm really close when they're kids and then I launch them into independent adults. But sometimes we even need to step in when they're adults and they're suffering. I mean, I know mm -hmm. I need my mom. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I need her to step in. I just need her to step in in a different way. And yeah. it's actually, you know, being able to be attuned to our our kids' needs in a less avoiding discomfort way, as you talk about. Parenting yeah. without overparenting. Um, 
Well, and I'll end on this. It was after this interview that I realized I was totally guilty of the twisting off the juice cap thing. And interestingly, I would let my son struggle through it a little bit more than my daughter. And I realized what I was doing after Julie and I had this interview. And so from that point forward, and and my daughter was more quick to give up, as some of the literature says happens more often with girls. And so now she'd be like, I can't do it. It's hurting my fingers. And I'm like, come on, I believe in you. You can do it. And she gets it off eventually every time. So hopefully she's building up those muscles in her arms that Julie says in the episode are atrophying because parents open their kids' juice bottles. And we have solved that problem after this interview. So I think you'll learn a lot listening to this one. Enjoy this episode with Julie Lithgott-Haynes. I am thrilled today to have Julie Lithgott-Haynes with me. For any of you who attended our Wise Mind Summit, you were able to hear me interview Julie at that time. And today we're going to talk about her new book, Your Turn. Julie is the New York Times bestselling author of the Anti-Helicopter Parenting Manifesto, How to Raise an Adult. Her TED Talk on the subject was one of the top talks of 2016, and in 2020, she became a regular contributor with CBS This Morning on parenting. Her second book is the critically acclaimed and award-winning prose poetry memoir, Real American, which illustrates her experience as a Black and biracial person in white spaces. Her third book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, came out in April of this year. Julie lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her partner, Dan, of over 30 years, their young adult children, and her mom. Julie, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Jill, thanks for having me back, and uh, I'm delighted to be here. Great. So I have to tell you, I absolutely love this book, and you talk about so much. I mean, you pack so much into this book, everything from people-pleasing to networking to finances to coping with grief. I mean, there's so much in here for emerging adults. We would need many hours of an interview to even scratch the surface. So hopefully people will buy the book so they can get all the juicy stuff. But I thought to start, we should define what the book is about, which is how to be an adult, right? Or the term that we often hear is adulting. So can you start by defining what you mean by adulting? Happily. And yes, it is a long book. And that's because you can't TLDR adulting. It is a massive topic. Adulting is the stage of life between childhood and death. It is a set of decades, we hope, that are healthy, where we (laughs) make our way out into the world, figure ourselves out, figure out what we want to do for work, figure out who we want to be in community with, who we want to be in relationship with, and we go and do and be those things. That is my definition of adulting. And this book is in response to the many, many, many members of the millennial generation for whom I have great compassion because I was a, fr- I was a college dean working with that generation and also for older Gen Zs who may feel this way too. For those millennials who said, you know what? I can't adult. I don't want to adult. I'm afraid to adult. I don't know how to adult. This is my way of saying, I get it. Yep. There are all kinds of valid reasons why you might be feeling stuck and you gotta. So I'm here with this very compassionate, but also frank and times blunt and at times funny and at times vulnerable book showing you how it's done. And there is no one way it's done. The point is there it's your path for you to carve. And I share my own stories 
and those of close to three dozen other humans from so many different walks of life to make the point. There are innumerable ways to do this. It's all about what you figure out to be true about yourself. There's some technical things you got to master. Yeah, but but it's really fundamentally about wanting to, about yeah. wanting to adult. When you want to, you will do the work to learn the skills and to figure your way forward. And it's that wanting to piece that I think has been lacking and creating a lot of fear in young adults. Yeah. Well, the book is definitely all those things. And one of the things I really liked that you pointed out, you know, when you're saying adulting is a really big topic is, you know, you specifically say it can't be boiled down to 10 tips or even a thousand tips. And we sort of live in this, like, there's been this like blogification of our lives and all the blogs are 10 tips for how to be an adult. And, you know, and, and you really can't, it's, it's complicated and complex and challenging. And, you know, one way I had never thought about this is you actually talk about being an adult as being a state of mind yeah, and that the state of mind is what ignites the doing that mm-hmm. ends up forging your adult self. And so you talk about as part wanting to, like you just said, part having to and part learning how. And I think that's, you know, that is exactly what this book does. Mm-hmm. You talk about almost like breaking the old rules of what adulting at one time meant. So, you know, finish school, get a job, leave home, get married, have kids, but that it's really about behaving responsibly, accountably, independently, all of which includes supporting oneself and making life choices. And I want to, I want to quote you here because I have a specific question. So I'm going to quote you to you from your book. You say, quote, A successful life is not about getting into a certain school or having a certain job or career or about how much money you have. It's not about perfection, making a singular noteworthy achievement, or having the most followers. People will hold these things out as the finish line for you to cross, but forget that. There is no finish line. Your work will feel most fulfilling if you've spent some time figuring out your unique interests and talents, and you go out there and get better and better at doing that stuff. So I love that. First of all, it's beautiful. And I couldn't agree more, but here's my question. Okay. All right. Yes. Uh, How do we encourage older teens or young adults, you know, people in that age group you mentioned to really follow this prescription? Because in some ways you're saying, follow your heart. You're saying be independent, financially independent, but you know, follow your heart. If their parents aren't on the same page, like if they have different goals for themselves than what their parents think they should have. So here is where book one, How to Raise an Adult on the Harm of Helicopter Parenting, which encroaches upon a kid's agency, undermines their resilience, and often doesn't result in a kid having good character. This is how that book slams into this book. In this book, in no uncertain terms, I talk about it's time to go off leash if your parents are holding a leash. If your parents are judging your identity, it's time to listen to what you know to be true about yourself instead of what your family seems to expect. If your parents have certain expectations about job and career, it's time to dislodge yourself from that. And I get to a point in the middle of the book, I say, I think in the get unstuck chapter, chapter six out of 13, it's called get out of neutral, the tragedy of unused potions. I say your parents' opinions perspectives, expectations, needs may be what's keeping you stuck. And we're at the midway point of this book. And the hinge of this book is to be an adult is to venture forward 
even if your parents disagree with the path you're taking. Now, if you're going to go be an ax murderer or a drug addict, yes, parents, please try to stop your young adult from doing that. But if they're choosing a career that you don't understand or you don't think is valuable or you don't think is lucrative, too bad, so sad. It's not your life. Stop. Okay. This book is advocating for young people to say, you know what? I know I have had this stirring in my heart that I'm a theater person, or I know I love working with kids and they want me to be a professor, but I'd rather be a third grade teacher. There is no parent who has the right to tell that child, you can't do that. I mean, fundamentally, I am rooting for every single human to chart their path forward listening to the messages that come from that inner voice that tells us, I'm good at this. I love this. And if you ask any of us, what would you do if it was just up to you? Most of us have an answer to that. And if we're not able to be that person, it's because society or parents or peers have told us, oh, that's not legitimate. Okay. And yes, finances are a reality, but you know what? When we're doing work we love, we can accept a smaller salary because the work is filling us in ways that no amount of money can. And I address that in the book. Like, yeah, you do need to be able to support yourself, but that doesn't mean you have to go work on Wall Street or be a corporate lawyer unless you love that. Awesome if you do, but if you're just doing that for the money and you're miserable, that's not success. I don't care how proud your family or peers seem to be. If you're miserable and well-paid, get out. Yeah, your parents aren't the ones who have to get up and take the subway to Wall Street and do the job eight hours a day or more every day for decades on end. So let's let's put a pin in there. There's an important caveat because for kids who are um, the children of immigrants who've struggled really hard and sacrificed a lot maybe to get to this country, for kids who grew up poor or working class where it's been you will get an education and you will better yourself and maybe help the rest of us, I totally get that. I have tons of stories in this book about people who are pulling themselves up to a place of greater ease and comfort financially based in comparison to how their parents grew up. And so I'm not trying to be flip. I'm not trying to say your parents' opinions are invalid. I'm saying the adult discerns, okay, this is what my parents want. Let me figure out how much of that I'm going to adhere to and address. And yet, I have the imperative to lead my life the way I know is right for me, because that is ultimately how I'm going to be the most successful, be able to contribute to my community, be of use as a happy, cooperative, kind person to my family. So it's, it's complex, but it's, it's about telling that young adult, Hey, you're in the driver's seat. You're not in the passenger seat anymore. You're not a dog on the end of someone else's leash and keeping those metaphors in mind, I think is a way to say, all right, yeah, other people's opinions are valid and you can talk with them and get their advice and guidance, but ultimately you're in charge. Well, the other thing it makes me think is that what you're saying too is make a conscious, deliberate choice that's based on your values. Don't just react on autopilot based on what other people are telling you to do. And so if you're making a conscious, deliberate choice based on your own values, that might also include your immigrant background, cultural background, parents' values, but you're being thoughtful and making a decision. Are these my values too? And if they are, then I'm going to weigh that. But if it's really discrepant from what matters to me, then I might choose to take a different path. 
That's exactly right. And I will underscore that I think it is the marker of adulthood when you can say, you know what, I know this is what I want to try next and my family doesn't get it or doesn't like it, but you know what, I'm going to do it anyway. I mean, I, I put in the book, I had a college friend who was from a wealthy family and her wealthy grandmother disowned her financially, literally and truly disowned her, my friend, because my friend chose to attend uh, a college that was not in the Ivy League. And that's wow. just not acceptable to grandma. And my friend said, basically, too bad. So sad. It's my life. She she sensed, wow. I will forever not be leading my life if my family's opinions of what I do end up being the dominant voice I listen to. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, this has actually led my husband and I to have a conversation. Our kids are almost seven and almost nine. And... You know, I said to him, how are we going to handle it if our kid says, I don't want to go to college and I want to be a painter, you know, some, something like that. What, how are we going to handle this? You know, I was telling him a little bit about the things I was reading in the book and what we came to, the agreement we came to is our kids can do whatever they want. If they want to be a painter, be a painter. The only rule we're going to have is you have to be able to support yourself. That's right. You're not going to live in our house and have us paying all of your bills while you paint, you're going to have to support yourself. And as long as, so I think what ends up happening, like for me, I'm a writer, but I don't support myself as a writer. So I have another job (laughs) and I also write, and I have found a way to do both of those things so that I can be financially independent. So your response and your husband's response is beautiful. And your seven, almost seven-year-old, almost nine-year-old are fortunate that you are their parents. And if we could just have parents hear this and ingest it and make it part of their own narrative and their own families, wow, we could return a lot of healthfulness to childhood, right? Um, And because the point is exactly that. First of all, it's their life. It is their choice. You have your life. You've chosen to have children. You are raising them, nurturing them, loving them, providing a roof and food and all of this. And there will come a point called adulthood when a child is expected to be able to make their own way, barring significant Uh, disabilities. They ought to be able to stand on their own two feet, so to speak, pay their bills. Okay. Once that's happening, great. Whatever they do, again, not being a drug dealer, but like every other way, any legal way, fantastic. It's their life. And that kid who wants to be a painter will be forever a hollow shell of themselves. If they are instead doing some other work that somebody else decided was more valuable But in their heart, that heart still knows I am meant to be a painter. I want to paint. And I, you know, I've got close to three dozen stories of other people in this book illustrating these various points. I think at least three of them, Jill, are artists. Mm -hmm. The, you know, chapter two opens with somebody who's working real hard to get a break in Hollywood and, you know, went to college. I think had a graduate degree, was working as a nanny and a yoga yoga teacher, and that still wasn't enough to pay the bills in LA, Uh, went on public assistance for a while, auditioning, auditioning, auditioning. That person is now the star of a show on Freeform, and she's in the book because how that actor became somebody who worked it and worked it and worked it and can now support herself, I want that story in here. I have a dancer in New York who had $50,000 in student loan debt. And paid that off on a dancer's salary, living in one of the most expensive cities in the world. And because she was like, I am a dancer and I'm going to dance and I'm going to figure this out. And she cut corners in terms of 
food, like she, she was frugal, very frugal. She became a financial planner on the side. She got so good at it. She does earn money from dancing. She is a, an artist full-time, but she's got this side hustle, which is the financial planning to help other people. So that's an example of how artists make it work. I've got a theater director who lives in Auburn, Alabama, who's, you know, dealing with bringing, you know, making that work work for him and his now wife. Um, so it is possible. It is plausible. It is feasible. It does require sacrifices, but that artist who is identifying I'm an artist. And yes, I do this other thing uh, nine to five in order to pay my bills, but I don't let, I don't choose a job that's going to encroach upon my evenings and my weekends, right? It's not going to inhabit my mental and emotional space. I'm just going to do this job, get my paycheck so that I can be an artist. If my art doesn't pay my bills, that's a very legitimate path that many, many artists, as you've just indicated, you're a writer, right? You're writing and you're doing other stuff to pay the bills. So these are legitimate choices and nobody has the right to tell another human that's not a legitimate pursuit. Right. And you figure this out by doing it, right? <laughs> by having challenging experiences, by failing. I mean, which also is a way that this book is is linked to the first book, although you know, what I see a lot in my practice are older teens or more young adults, kids who are maybe 20, 21, 22, who have had helicopter parents and now are really struggling to do these things independently. I'm thinking of an example where I had a client who desperately wanted to be independent and her mom actually got her into therapy for anxiety and theoretically also wanted her to be independent. But when my client would change things up. So for example, she would want to cook for herself without being micromanaged by her mom, but her mom would then get angry and storm off and give her the silent treatment. So there were like these real costs to making some of these changes to, to essentially going against what the parent was wanting of her. So I think, you know, how difficult this is can't be underemphasized. But at the end of the day, what's the alternative? I mean, what a terrible life to be 25 and need your mom to be cooking with and for you. I mean, you just, you got to do it, right? The silent treatment when you do choose to try to exert your independence. And as you know, I write about this in the book, Ben in chapter six, Get Out of Neutral is an example of a 30-year-old who is still living under his parents' roof. He has two graduate degrees He has a condo that his parents won't let him live in because they want the rent money. They open his mail. They ask him where he's going. They want to know. His mother will call and yell at him if he's not home by dark. He's 30. His mother probably has some kind of underlying mental health condition. He is struggling with the fact that every time he tries to leave, she ices him out. She does exactly what your client's mother does. She acts offended. She acts hurt and she ignores him. And that's painful for him. And any psychologist listening, and as you well know, would say like the cost to Ben of moving out feels like it's greater than the cost of staying because he's staying and enduring this because, you know, she's made good on her threats. He does not want to be completely ignored. And so I have his story in here in the get out of neutral chapter, which is about the things that hold you back because he's not yet a fully fledged independent. I'm on my own. I'm out of under my parent. I'm out from under my parents' thumb adult, but he's trying and he's working on it. And the 
beautiful thing that's a side sort of a dividend of this interview process. He met with my research assistant. We got the first interview maybe three years ago, two years ago. When I called him back to get an update as the book was getting finalized, he said, well, I've lost 143 pounds since our first call. And he said, in talking to my amazing research assistant, Lee, he said, I think talking to Lee, talking through what I was doing in furtherance of my own independence, like having my own checking account that they don't look at and have access to, made me realize the small steps I have been able to take and see the benefit of those and made me think, well, what else can I do? And we didn't even know his weight was a concern for him in the first call. And so when he showed up on the second call, was like, I've lost 140. We were like, whoa, if that isn't a sign, not to, I'm not trying to be weightist or, or fat shaming at all. He said, I lost this weight. That was important to me. He had apparently been quite heavy and the, he was dislodging some agency that was lurking within himself. And he located and said, you know what, even though she cooks, I'm going to be in charge of what I eat in this house. And I'm going to be in charge once I feel comfortable getting out there and walking the streets of my suburb where my parents live and I live, you know, he, you could just see this person emerging into the space of, I am in charge of some aspects of my life. I will decide what goes in my mouth, even though my mother wants to constantly feed, I'm just going to say, you know what? No. And boy, has he really kind of staked some boundaries and maybe they're not anywhere near as big as someone else's might be, or any where as large as, as he would want those boundaries to be, but they are there and they're growing. And I'm rooting for this person. That's amazing. And that's so important. I mean, small things matter. If we think about, you know, this is adulting is a learning process. And if you've never done it, you know, if I've never ridden a bike, I'm not going to go get on two wheels and take off and, you know, do the tour de France, right? There's going to be a lot of steps training wheels and falling down and, you know, a lot of steps before I get to the point of being able to ride that bike. And, and I could read lots of blogs about 10 tips for adulting and that's not going to do it either. Right. So I think, you know, that's, that's so important that, that most things that we ultimately master over time, it takes practice, it takes time and it takes multiple baby steps. Nobody does it all in one fell swoop. And for Ben, he had a much higher mountain to climb. Yeah. Let me say two things. One is um, there is a four-step method for teaching any kid, any skill, which I articulate in the first book, How to Raise an Adult, which I want your listeners to hear about. And you can find this written on my website so you can follow up if that's of interest because it really is fundamental, bedrock, essential. But I want to say first that um, there are self-help lists in this book. It is, you know, even though adulting can't be boiled down to them, I wouldn't write a book that was only a list of things. I know that some people really learn from lists. Some people want lists. And so these chapters are almost every single one of them has a handy list, which is meant to kind of pull out some of the things you're hearing in the storytelling that I do. I do stories from my own life. I've got these other people that I've interviewed at the end of every chapter. Um, Stories are the way humans feel connected less alone, more supported, a hopeful, optimist, all these things. So stories are in there to help every reader feel, hey, wait a minute. Okay, I get this. I can relate to this. And then the tips are in there because people, some people want tips and that's, and that's valid. But to the four steps, so to the tips, to the practical from the other book, the four-step method for teaching any kid any skill. 
First, you do it for them. Then you do it with them. Then you watch them do it. And only then can they do it independently. And too often, if we're over in parenting, we're stuck in steps one and two. We're doing it for our kid or with them, meaning they're there, but we're doing all the work. Like we're crossing the street with them and for them. We're looking both ways instead of teaching them how to look both ways, how to develop that instinct that it's safe to cross. Step three is you're still there, but you're watching them do it. You're there for the just in case they're going to set the house on fire as they cook that grilled cheese sandwich moment, or just in case they're going to step in front of a truck they did not see coming. Okay, you're still there, but only you're not macromanaging. Do not micromanage what helicopter parenting is. It's a constant micromanagement. You're there to do step three enough times until you and they are confident they have arrived at step four, which is they can do it without your having to be there at all. Every single skill of life is something a child has to learn over the course of childhood and get to step four on. Yeah. When we overhelp, we're just depriving them. And then we shouldn't be surprised at all that they're bewildered, scared, uncertain about how to make their way forward. We have Mm -hmm. done too much and basically taught them, you can't, so I'll do it for you. We are so excited that Act Daily Journal by Diana Hill and Debbie Sorensen is coming out on May 1st. It's available to pre-order now at barnesandnoble.com, or you can link to it through drdianahill.com or through our podcast webpage. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's so great. And that goes for whether your kid is four or whether your kid is 40, if you're still micromanaging and we think we're helping, but really if we're over helping for too long, that's about us and our anxiety and our discomfort. If I'm not letting my nine-year-old cross the street by herself, that's because I'm scared, not because it's actually unsafe or she can't do it. So I think for parents to really recognize the function of these behaviors for themselves, you know, we need to learn how to open up and make space for some of that discomfort. And that's actually helping our kids so that they can be independent. So I would just say, put that on repeat and just make it like you <laughs> sell. So everyone hears it. And, and let me say, look, I'm not a psychologist. I'm a former lawyer who, be, who and a former college dean. And now I'm an author and writer and speaker. Um, so I can't say it with the authority with which you just said it, but I am constantly saying it anyway, because I have observed it and I've read about it and it's entirely true. Of course, we're trying to just help and be useful, but it is ultimately our own fears that are getting in the way and our 
prohibiting us from allowing our children to have the normal, healthy childhood experiences that will teach them skills and teach them resilience and ultimately make them stronger and and really well prepared to get out there. And, And let me just say, whatever authority I purport to be by having penned three books, I am also a parent who has overparented my kids. And I was railing against overparenting on my campus and telling parents kindly, but firmly telling parents to back off. And then one day I came home to my own family. My kids were eight and 10. We were having dinner. I sat down next to my 10 year old, leaned over his plate and began cutting his chicken. And that, that's when I got it, Jill. I was like, oh my gosh. Oh, ho. it was like, Dickens ghost of Christmas future was visiting me. She's telling me, <laughs> I wish your listeners could see you laughing at me, which is perfect because that's the point. Like I'm trying to, it is a funny story. And I want every parent listening to know, like, I get it. I've done it. I'm still doing it. I we all do it. it. Right. But I have seen, as you trace that 10 year old four to 21, I have seen the ways I've laid down patterns that overhelp that sort of signal that maybe he's fragile or can't handle things. So I'm taking care of it. I didn't intend that. But in unpacking the behaviors through some therapy, we're realizing, oh my gosh, look what we've done. Okay. I realized then you cannot let go of an 18 year old who goes off to college, the workplace or the military. If you've been cutting the meat of a 10 year old, because there are so many skills that kid must learn beyond use a knife and fork safely in order to jettison them out into the world. So I learned then that it isn't that these parents are just starting to overparent their 18-year-old. They've been doing it since the child learned to walk and they've been overprotective around edges and surfaces and they've not let them, you know, learn to use knives and forks or use the stove and they've never had to tie their own shoes or unscrew a juice drink. Many teenagers don't have the uh, muscles or the manual dexterity to crack that plastic top on a juice drink. That's a wonderful visual metaphor of overparenting. We've always done it for them. Mm -hmm. This helpful offering. Let me do that. No, hand your kid the bottle and have them struggle. How do you think they're ever going to get it? You know, so we've done that and it's, we're not trying to harm them, but it has harmed them. And we really have to see that our job is to put ourselves out of a job to raise this human, barring significant special needs, raise this human to a place where they can do it themselves. I love that. Our job is to put ourselves out of a job. You know, the other thing I'm it's just occurring to me now is that these things that we're doing as parents in an effort to be helpful, that the reason for doing it changes over time. It's always about managing our own discomfort, but the reason for discomfort, I think, changes. So when my kids are little, it's maybe more about safety, like physical safety, and also about protecting them from, say, frustration, like with the juice cap example. Then I think as they get older, a lot of it, you know, if you've been over parenting a kid their whole life and now they're 20 and you suddenly say, you know what, you need to do your own laundry from now on. I think the fear then turns to, oh, no, they're not going to like me. Yeah. They're mm-hmm. going to think I mean they're because, you know, they're. And I've had a couple different clients where that has been the case. And so I think for us as parents to really be aware of what is this triggering in us? If I let go and let my kid be more independent, what is that triggering in me that I need to work on a little bit more? I think you're 100% right. And I would add that the final bit, so that's the fear, the overprotection, oh no, I'm worried. And that isn't just when they're young for many of us 
particularly if we haven't practiced it when they're younger, giving them a longer and longer leash, you know, we're terrified when they go out into the world and they and we need to be on the phone constantly as they're walking to and from class or to their job. You know, they just they don't know how to be in the world without us and we don't feel that they're safe and they might not be safe because we've never let them develop the instincts around crossing the street, you know, or avoiding that one creepy stranger instead of avoiding all strangers. You know, you've said, oh, no, they're not going to like me. And that's a huge sort of mindset brewing within what I call the concierge style of helicopter parenting, which is how can I make your childhood easier? I'll just smooth the path. I'll show up and rescue you. I'll bring the stuff you forgot. I'll manage your deadlines. But I think the piece that I want to add is the ego of, I need you to have these outcomes, study these things, go to school like this, have a career like this. I need that so that I can brag about you. Cause when I can show the world what you've become, I feel better about myself. And that's, I think, the tiger type of parenting. That's the authoritarian Mm -hmm. style of helicopter parenting, which is, I will make clear that you must tread this particular path in life. I will condition my love upon how well you march down the path I've laid for you. And that is all about a parent's ego and their need to feel fulfilled through the achievements of their child. Mm -hmm. All of these, whether it's the overprotection, the concierge, or the tiger type, it's all about us and managing our ego and discomfort. And ultimately, I think one of the things you said that I want to come back to that I think is so important, kind of hit me like a ton of bricks, is often the things that we're doing are actually creating the exact outcome we're trying to avoid. If we overprotect our kids, then they're not going to be safe in the world. Ultimately, if we want to have a good relationship with our kids, we're going to actually create a terrible relationship by overparenting. And, you know, maybe knowing that maybe the thing I'm doing to prevent a feared outcome is actually making that feared outcome more likely. Maybe that's something that can give parents something to hang their hat on in terms of a willingness to let go. In the book, I say, how many of us parents are still trying to please our parents. How many of us are in therapy because we have made choices in furtherance of what our parent or grandparent expected of us? Like, let us not foist that generational trauma on our kids. I'm not against therapy, but I say, let it not be therapy um, in furtherance of trying to please, wondering why you're trying to always please your dad or your mom. You know, there, there are maybe we can write this wrong in this generation. Maybe we can collectively take a deep breath and appreciate that the universe or God, or however you believe we all get here, gave us these children and that they are precious beings who have so much to teach us. We're not supposed to mold them. As Khalil Gibran wrote in The Prophet, right? They are not ours. They come through us, but they're not ours. And um, there's a humility in that. If you can really accept that, this is a separate being. And you know what? I'm going to give you one example if I can. I had a mom call me up and with an aha moment where she got that her psychological distance was too close to her child. May I share this example? Yeah, please do. I got two sons. My older son is in a therapeutic boarding school environment. I think he was age 16 or 17. We have family therapy once or twice a week. And this week on family therapy, he said, mom, every time you ask me, have you handled this? Have you done this? Have you completed this? Every time you remind me that I need to do things, it makes me think that you don't think I can. And sometimes I just want to not do it because 
you know, I'm tired of this. And this mom called me and she said, she relayed this. She said, Julie, I realize I'm micromanaging that kid constantly because he's my biological son. And I feel that his DNA, his genetic makeup is half mine. And therefore I am responsible for who he is and what he becomes reflects back on me. She said, Julie, my younger son is adopted. I don't feel responsible for who he becomes. I just love the heck out of this kid, try to provide him with the opportunities and furtherance of what he's interested in. She said, Julie, I realize I have the healthier psychological distance with my adopted son. I don't love them him any less. I love them both fiercely, but I have a degree of need to control the one who shares my biological material. It was such an aha wow. moment, this mom. I thought it was brilliant. I share it wherever I go because- you know, it's, it doesn't have to be about you have a bio kid and an adopted kid, you know, envision yourself, like, think about how loving and interested and curious you can be about your nieces, nephews, nibblings, as some people call them, right? Um, You don't feel responsible for what's happening to them in chemistry. You just can express compassion if they're struggling, like, oh no, I'm so sorry. That's not going well. Let me know if you need any help. How are those guitar lessons, right? You can validate what's happening for them, show a genuine interest. But if you're the parent, oh no, what are we going to do? How did that happen? I thought we studied, you know, let me call the chem teacher. Like, wait a minute, stop. The kid is in chemistry, not you, right? Stop. Right. Okay. Well, let's talk about, so let's say, you know, we've got kids that are saying, okay, or I should say young adults. See, even me calling them kids is reflective of how we treat emerging adults. 22 and 23 year olds. I kind of raise my eyebrows. It's definitely what we do. Okay. So we've got our young adults and they want to be independent and forge their path. And one of the lists you talk about, I do love the lists that are in the book. Um, and the stories absolutely bring all of this to life. One of the lists you talk about is around fending. And there are, I think it was like nine different basic ways that young adults can learn how to fend. So will you, will you define for us? What do you mean when you talk about fending? Yeah. Um, fend for yourself, something I heard growing up a lot, took for granted that I knew what it meant. I've had to drill into it for this book. Fending is knowing it's on you and you are capable. So you can procure your shelter. You can pay your bills. You can procure food. Um, um, you can take care of business. It's the basics. Fending isn't, you got a promotion at work or you bought a new car. Fending is you can keep yourself alive. Yeah. And I liked that you said it isn't just about learning how to do things. It's also appreciating, like, you know, what's expected of you. You want to learn to do this stuff and you have to motivate yourself to do it. So would you, will you go through a couple of the examples of like, what are some of the, you you don't have to go through all nine, but what are some of the basics of fending? Well, um, I described it, first of all, I use the metaphor of watching a game of dodgeball, a game of dodgeball. If somebody is fending, they're playing the game. They are throwing the ball at the opponent and they're dodging the ball when it comes. And sometimes they hit their mark and sometimes they get hit by the ball, but they keep going. You win some, you lose some, you keep going. If somebody is micromanaging your life and not allowing you to learn to fend, it's sort of like you're in the bleachers uh, watching you're someone else play on your behalf. It's like you have a designated player and you're watching your game being played, but you're not really doing any of the effort or dealing with any of the consequences or feeling any of the joy, you know, of a great 
move. Um, so that's the sort of feeling offending, like, no, I can do this. The two-year-old who insists, I tie my shoes, I'm going <laughs> to do it, right? And they can't yet, yeah, but they want to, they want to fend, they want to do it. They want to stop, stop helping. So, um, okay. So offending items, <clears throat> they're so basic, but as parents, we've kind of overlooked that you want to send someone out into adult life capable of attend to the care and maintenance of your body, find work that pays your bills, try hard. That's effort. That's growth mindset. You're not going to be perfect, but keep trying. Make your own decisions. Get along with others. I mean, humans form a huge part of the fabric of your life unless you're a total loner and, and human relationships are key to our survival. So you want to not only have others in your life, but get along with them. Keep track of your stuff. How many of us are rescuing our kids and bringing them their forgotten stuff? And if they, if we're wealthy and they lost their coat and they've lost their second coat and third coat, we just keep buying more coats. Instead of saying, go find your coat. You don't let someone, you know, freeze to death in a blizzard because they don't have a coat. You know, you don't let someone miss their recital that they've worked for a year to prepare for because they left their instrument at home. Like those are times when we should rescue. But if it's the run of the mill day to day, oh, I forgot my homework. I forgot my lacrosse stick. Let life teach them the lesson of remember your stuff. Number seven is reply and show up. This is about manners and commitment to others. Number eight is find your people and care for them. This is about recognizing there's more than you in this life. That's another key component of adulting. It's not all about you. You know, you have other humans in their life. What do they need? How can you show up in ways that help them? And then finally, plan for your future. Uh, this is about trying as a 20-something to think about what your 50-something self will need and appreciate financially, in terms of your self-care, your wellness, uh, the choices you've made. You don't want to completely live as a 20-year-old worrying about your 65-year-old self, you know, sort of deferring, deferring, deferring happiness, experiences, um, pleasures, constantly in furtherance of waiting till I'm 60. But at the same time, you don't want to just blow everything, have a blowout set of 20s that you're really going to regret when you look back um, on them as a 40 or 50-something. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, when kids are little, they're so egocentric and this is, you know, you're talking about like developmentally to learn how to engage in perspective taking. And as I was reading this book, the book is, is written for young adults, you know, people who are adulting, <laughs> becoming adults. I really think that it is, of course, it is helpful for that audience. I also found it really as a 40, almost 48 year old woman, who's a parent of young kids, I found it really helpful as a parent too, to be thinking about these things now and what can I be doing to make it more likely that they, that this isn't going to be an uphill battle for them. You know, again, I think about some of my clients who, or maybe like Ben, who you were talking about that sort of like trying to make these changes now at 30, when there's been so much ground laid, but it's a real uphill battle. And I think that adulting is hard, even if you've had the best parenting and your parents have promoted your independence. So, you know, I, I do, tr I really recommend it for both, you know, the, the teens and young adults, but parents too, of, of kids of all ages. I'm glad to hear yeah. that. I've look, I wrote it, as you know, the narrative is this close first person narrative where I'm talking to the young adult as if we are sitting together, having coffee. Um, I want them to feel that connection and care. I want them to feel seen, supported, heard, validated, believed in, rooted for. 
And I hope that parents of those folks who might be stuck or struggling will also pick it up because I think there's a lot embedded in here that a parent can say like, oh, okay, I need to do this and that in furtherance of supporting this young person, not doing it for them, you know, not abandoning them, but standing kind of near them as they do it, offering love and support, but not overly so. And then you've just offered me a third um, audience, which is fantastic. You're saying that as a parent of young kids, you're seeing stuff in here. I thought you were going to say it's helping you on your path as a human. You said it's helping me as a parent of seven and nine-year-olds imagine what lies ahead for them. And I think that's perfect. I hadn't contemplated that people would do that. Yep. In some ways, this is a roadmap to the rest of your life and you know how to to support our young people in getting there really regardless of what age they are. Terrific to hear that you would recommend it to those folks too. I would. And so let me ask you another question. I know we're starting to get short on time and I have, you know, like five more questions, but (laughs) I'll, I'll limit myself. But one of the things you talk about is, and actually, you know what, I'm just going to quote you again, because you say it much more beautifully than I will if I try to um, paraphrase it. So you say, much more important than the work you do is how you behave with humans. Research proves you'll feel happiest during life and at its end if you find some small set of humans who know the real you and who love and support you no matter what and whom you love and support and return. And this is something, this feels huge to me. And it's something that I have just kind of like learned by experience over time. And, you know, now I'm a middle-aged woman, but what sticks out to me here is like in this age of social media, it feels extra hard for young people to truly be their real selves. Like we know you have to be your authentic self, vulnerable, show your warts, in order to truly connect with others, you can't just be the highlight real version of yourself to have true connection with other people. But I feel like there's a lot of pressure on young people. You know, we know that they're taking five different photos of themselves before they post it, or they're texting five photos to their friends saying, which one is the best for me to put out there? Do you have any specific thoughts about how we can really encourage young people to be their true authentic selves in the service of true connection with other humans in this age of technology and social media. You know, you'd think that a book for young adults would have a chapter called social media, but (laughs) you've seen the book. So, you know, I'm a little bit more oblique than that. I'm sliding things in, in different places. And for example, the chapter that really is all about the necessity of having meaningful interactions and relationships with humans is called start talking to strangers. Humans are key to your survival instead of like relationships matter. And so I'm constantly writing about social media in this book without having the social media chapter, just as like, I'm constantly acknowledging folks have mental health issues and learning differences and various other challenges without having a chapter that's only about those things. And what I would say is what we know from the research of common sense media which is an amazing organization, not-for-profit, I'm on the board. They do research about media and kids and young people is if somebody is psychologically healthy, their social media usage and interactions neither enhances the sense of self nor decreases the sense of self. But if you are struggling with depression, for example, or anxiety, Social media can make you feel better about yourself when things go well on social, 
or worse about yourself if you don't get the right number of likes or people are outright mean or harmful, or if you just feel everyone else's life is better than mine. So I do a lot of critiquing of the curating culture, the the five photos to find the perfect one, or just only posting about the amazing things that are happening in your life. I do a lot of empathizing with the fact that that is a challenge that this generation is meeting that the older generations didn't have to deal with. And so I, I, I'm offering my critique while also speaking to the importance of self-care and wellness, hoping that the message then is, it's really not about social media. It's about, can I get right within myself? Can I get to a good place, you know, a place of self-awareness, what I deal with, what my struggles are, some self-regulation about my feelings and, you know, kind of get to a place of, all right, I'm, I'm okay. Then your social media use is, is not going to, to have a negative or an overly positive impact on, on your life. So social media turns out to just be another indicator of really what's going on within ourselves. Mm, I mean, I think the importance of being authentic and being your, your real self. And I'm hoping that, you know, that that's about the jobs you choose and the relationships you want to be in and the identities you claim I'm rooting for all of those things to happen, confident that when those things happen, then that person can go to social media and be like, okay, my friend just had this awesome promotion or bought this new house or went on this trip, but you know, and that I'm happy for them. And that doesn't diminish how I feel about me because I'm also feeling good about the choices I'm making. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Julie, this has been wonderful. It flew by. I'm glad I kept an eye on the clock or I'd probably keep you for another hour. I can't believe how fast how fast the time went. But thank you so much for being here. I think this is going to be incredibly useful for people. The book is amazing. I hope people will check it out. If people want to learn more about you, you know, as I mentioned in your bio, you have another book that's a memoir. I mean, you have so much to offer the world. Where can people find you if they want to learn more from you? I appreciate it, Jill. I I want to say one more thing quickly, which is just a priority for me around this book was to be very inclusive in telling stories. I've alluded to the fact that there are close to three dozen other people in here from all walks of life. And I mean that. If you're queer, trans, gender fluid, you're going to see yourself in this book. If you're black, brown, Asian, native, or white, you're going to see yourself in this book. Whatever your religion is, you're going to see yourself in this book. Or if you lack a religion, and you know, if you're a dog owner, you're, if you're a vegan, you're going to see yourself in this book. Socioeconomic statuses. Yeah, you you really did a great job of yeah. In other words, yeah. I would be arrogant. It would be useless to try to write a book on adulting and keep the examples in some narrow band of the human experience. I've really tried to cast my net wide and I'm grateful to the many people who let me tell their stories on these pages. So that's a plug for what I call my commitment to inclusion in this book. I'm actually trying to help publishing figure out how to be more inclusive when writing nonfiction Mm -hmm. books. Stay connected to me, follow up via my website, julielifcotthames.com. Depending on when you actually hear this, I may already have my new membership club launched. This is a way to grow deeper with me. I try to create spaces where we can be vulnerable and authentic and keep it real with one another. And um, so that's coming. You can learn about that through the website. My social handles are all jlifcotthames. That's Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And I'm even going to venture out onto TikTok. And jlifcotthames is is the place to find me. So please do connect with me. If anything that I'm saying resonates, um, just uh, let's connect. 
I'd love and to. And Lithgott is yeah. spelled with a Y, L-Y-T-H-C-O-T-T, right? And Haymes is H-A-I-M-S. And Julie just recently read from her memoir on Instagram. Your, I am so jealous of your she shed or <laughs> you've got a little pod in your backyard that looks like an amazing little escape to do writing and other creative things. So you can check her out. It's my little outdoor office, 10 steps from my kitchen door, a room of my own, so to speak. Yeah. It's lovely. The fire pit and the pod. It's lovely. So people check Julie out. Thank you so much for being here. This was wonderful. And thanks to your listeners for spending this close to an hour with us. I really appreciate everyone who's listening now. And thank you, Jill, for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, and our interns, Katie Rothfelder and Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.